This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. 187. That number came up a lot last night during the 8th House Committee hearing into the events of January 6, 2021. Here's what will be clear by the end of this hearing. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. During the primetime hearing, the panel tried to show how former President Trump's inaction during those three hours encouraged the mob to attack the Capitol. Did they succeed? And now that the last hearing on their docket has aired, what's next for the J6 committee? There's a lot to get to today, and here to help us out is Susan Page. She's the Washington bureau chief for USA Today and the author of Madam Speaker. Susan, welcome. Great to be with you. And Jonathan Lemire, the White House bureau chief for Politico. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be here. Those 187 minutes are the three hours between the attack on the Capitol and the former president telling everyone to go home. So what did we learn during last night's hearing about where Trump was and what he was doing during those three hours? Jonathan, I'll start with you. Well, we knew from some previous reporting that after he left the ellipse, his rally there, uh, and then argued with Secret Service and pleaded with them to let him go to the Capitol, uh, the president returned to the White House and sequestered himself in the little private dining room that's just off the Oval Office, where staffers really don't have access to him. What we learned, though, much more so last night, was that the White House photographer was forbidden from taking any shots uh, of him while he was in there. There are no records of any call logs from him while he was in there. Staffers were not really able to bother him while he was in there. And then we heard in their own voices, not from Democrats, not from Never Trumpers, but rather White House aides say in their testimony, that President Trump was simply watching on television and couldn't be convinced to intervene. In fact, was enjoying the spectacle of violence laid out before him. And that was extraordinarily damaging. Uh, And then because as we learned last night in even more chilling detail, just how violent things were on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and how Donald Trump's own vice president, Mike Pence, his life was perceived to be in such danger that his Secret Service detail, while trying to hustle him to safety, were also calling their colleagues offsite and asking them to pass on to their loved ones messages telling them that they would love them forever because they weren't sure they were going to get out of there alive. Yeah, so much really shocking, breathtaking tape, so many moments last night. I, I want to play one moment. Uh, you just spoke about the lack of access to the president that so many of his staff members had. I want to play Matthew Pottinger, who served as deputy national security advisor to President Trump. You could count me among those who was uh, hoping to see an unequivocal, strong statement uh, clearing out the Capitol, telling people to stand down, leave, go home. Um, I, I think that's what we were hoping for. And Susan, what else did we learn yesterday about what was happening during that time and who was pressuring President Trump to issue a statement during those critical hours? Well, one extraordinary thing, sir, is everyone was pressuring President Trump to come out with a statement or to post a tweet that would say, stop the violence, leave the Capitol, go home. That would include everyone from his counsel, Pat Cipollone, who was shown in a recorded in recorded testimony last night, that was true of 
uh, his, uh, his daughter, Ivanka. It was true of congressional leaders like Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and it was true even with some of the Fox News personalities who have been among the president's, President Trump's most uh, reliable supporters saying he had to act. And one, he, he did finally, uh, he did finally record a message which was posted uh, that was kind of grudgingly told uh, the rioters to leave peacefully. But the committee made the point that that statement from the president did not come until the tide had turned and it was clear that law enforcement officials were going to be able to retake control of the Capitol and clear it out. And that, and that leads to the impression, at least, that the mob was doing something that Trump perhaps even hoped would succeed, which would be to delay the electoral, uh, the account of the Electoral College votes, delay the uh, official end of the campaign, delay the moment when, when Joe Biden definitely became the president-elect. You mentioned people close to the president. Uh, you mentioned Ivanka Trump. Her husband, Jared Kushner, uh, was among those uh, involved on that day. Uh, we, we heard from him in a video clip from last night's hearing. I heard my phone ringing, turned the shower off, saw it was leader uh, McCarthy, who I had a good relationship with. Uh, he told me he was getting really ugly over at the Capitol and said, please, you know, anything you could do to help, I would appreciate it. Uh, I don't recall specific asks, just anything you could do. The, again, I got the sense that, you know, they were, they were, you know, they were scared. They meaning Ms. Leader McCarthy and people on the Hill because of the violence? That he, he was scared, yes. So in pretty dramatic fashion, you know, we heard what, what I think we knew before, which was that people were asking the president to intervene. Were there any surprises uh, that we heard last night about who was communicating with the president that day and everything else that went on? First of all, I think we could raise questions about Jared Kushner's midday showering habits, um, although I think he had just come back from a trip from the Middle East. Uh, the, everyone in the president's orbit was asking him to intervene. And that the committee played so effectively the outtakes of when he finally was convinced to go to the to the Rose Garden and film a video that was then tweeted out. It took him several takes, and he didn't want to say it. He didn't want to condemn uh, the rioters. He veered off script, going off the cuff instead, and peppered it and inserted a line in there saying that they loved the rioters, that he understood why they were upset because the election had been quote, stolen. And we know, of course, that is not the case. And I think just as interesting is the video that we saw that he taped the following day on January 7th, uh, in which he, at that point, because there had been real talk of the 25th Amendment that he potentially could be removed from office, he was pressured into giving a more forceful condemnation of what uh, had happened the day before. But even then, uh, though he stuck to the script more this time, he still didn't want to really threaten the rioters with consequences because those were his supporters and he didn't want to alienate them. And then secondly, he also did not want to acknowledge that the election was over and that he had lost. And that is something to this day that he is not, he is not acknowledged. He is not conceded. He still is believing and spreading the big lie. And I want to just hear a moment from that outtake you mentioned, Jonathan, from January 7th. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Susan, what was the strategy behind showing these outtakes? Oh, man, that was, I think, I agree with Jonathan, I think that was the most devastating moment of the hearing, even though it was after that period of 187 minutes on which we've all been so focused. Because there you saw the president 
the day after this incredible historic event, the nation is still reeling from the memories. They're still you know, sweeping up the broken glass in the Capitol, and he is flailing in his effort to continue to deny that he lost the election. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, he, and you see, you can hear Ivanka Trump off camera trying to kind of coax him, get into, work out uh, what, he's, what it is he should say. At one point he says, he keeps stumbling over the word yesterday, and he says, I have trouble with the word yesterday. So they take the word yesterday out of the, out of the script. Um, he he looks like uh, he, he's in bat. He's definitely embattled, and here we are all this time later, uh, looking back. And Pres- former President Trump continues to take this position. Former President Trump has continued to never say that the election is over, and he continues to campaign. He may wage another presidential campaign in 2024 on the idea that the 2020 election was never over. One other development from earlier this week, the Secret Service was able to give the committee a single text message its officers sent last January. The committee had requested a month's worth of records from 24 Secret Service agents from January 2021. On Wednesday, the Department of Homeland Security's internal watchdog group opened a criminal investigation into the possible erasure of those texts. Jonathan, how does this new probe change change things, if at all? It has raised an extraordinary number of questions here in Washington. It's the conduct of the Secret Service in the aftermath of the insurrection. And the timeline is, 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 is frankly, so damning that, yes, there was an effort to data migration from one set of phones to another. The Secret Service was part of doing that. No one disputes that part of it. It was scheduled for late January. Uh, but they received, agents in the, the agency, uh, received notice in December and then again in January to preserve their records. And let's remember, they're federal government employees. Those records should be preserved as a matter of course. That's routine. On a normal day, those records should be kept, at least temporarily. These weren't for anything but normal days, January 5th and 6th. And they, congressional investigators, just 10 days after... January 6th, said to them, preserve your cell phone records. Ten days after that began the data migration. They did nothing to stop it, and the records were lost. On that note, Sid tweeted us, quote, I watched every minute of the hearing last night. No wonder the Secret Service doesn't want us to see those texts. They were in imminent danger, saying goodbye to their families, and no doubt the talk got ugly. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. One last question related to January 6th, and then we have much more to talk about. Former Trump strategist Steve Bannon is on trial this week for defying a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Closing arguments are today. Susan, what is his defense team arguing and and what does this what could be next for him? Well, his defense team isn't arguing much. They didn't put on much of a defense. The judge uh, prevented them from doing some of the charges of political uh, uh, partisanship that uh, that the judge decided didn't really apply. It's been a pretty straightforward uh, trial. The prosecution put on just two witnesses describing how Steve Bannon defied a congressional subpoena to come and testify. Uh, this could come to a quick. This could come to a pretty quick conclusion. Steve Bannon uh, argues that um, that 
he was in, he was in more more not defying the subpoena. He was trying to negotiate his appearance uh, before Congress to testify. That is a kind of late breaking offer that that he has made. Uh, it is a sign of how on how many threads there are relating to January six that are still being pulled. I'm really struck by the number of news stories from um, so, so many places, including this grand jury meeting and in Georgia about uh, about what happened there to to uh, cha- to uh, question the results of the election so how many things are still in play even as we move toward this next presidential election Steve Bannon's trial is one of them but it's not one that we think is going to take very long for a jury to decide one last note on January 6th one of our listeners JD Sanderson tweets I watched the January 6th hearing last night I'm a science fiction writer and I couldn't come up with anything half this crazy If you have thoughts you want to share with us you can tweet us at 1A On Wednesday the Senate unveiled plans to modernize the 135-year-old Electoral Count Act Jonathan first of all what is that This is what the Trump and his allies tried to take advantage of back on January 6th. It's the, it is sort of written in law in the 1880s, I believe, and certainly not used too much since then. Uh, and what is done, it basically, it would left vague the role of the vice president uh, in part of the electoral count certification process, which was, of course, what was happening on January 6th. This new effort here, bipartisan, led by Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, and Joe Manchin, a Democrat of West Virginia, would tighten and clarify that and basically make clear that the vice president is simply presiding in a ceremonial way. It also makes it tries to eliminate the ability for there to be alternate set of electors be part of that process. And that, again, is what Trump and his allies were trying to do, present false sets of electors that claim Trump had won in battleground states and when Pence would to be there and then suddenly presented with the real electors that were going for Biden and then these fake, the false ones going for Trump, he would say, well, we've got confusion, let's throw them out and the remaining states would give Donald Trump enough to win. So that's the effort here to try to tighten that loophole and at least Democrats and some good government groups say that's a step in the right direction even if they're, even in, in the, despite the lack of full-fledged federal uh, voting rights reform. Yeah, I think that's the big question, is it? And I mean, if, if this passes, could it actually prevent a repeat of January 6th? Susan? It would, make it, it would make it harder because it does it does a couple things. It clarifies the role of the vice president. It also raises the bar to challenge electoral votes from a particular state. You know, at the moment, you need one member of Congress and one senator to challenge uh, a state's electors and require a debate over whether to accept them. This would raise that significantly. I think it's, it would have to be 20 percent uh, of the House and of the Senate uh, to, in order to raise, uh, in order to raise, effectively raise that objection. And it's, you know, this is a, uh, the, the, the broader voting rights legislation uh, is, does not have, has a really uphill climb uh, in Congress. This, it is possible that this will pass this year and go to, go to President Biden's uh, desk to be signed. It's, it, as Jonathan said, it has bipartisan support in the Senate. They're not up to the 10 Republican senators you need to get past the filibuster, but it is seen as possible uh, that this is something that members of both parties see as, as important to do. 
Now to legislation that has some bipartisan support but appears less likely to go anywhere. Tuesday, the House passed legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriage. That came after Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the court could reconsider decisions on same-sex marriage and sodomy laws. Forty-seven House Republicans voted in favor of the bill, but it's expected to stall in the Senate. Jonathan, what is the strategy among Democrats in bringing this bill to a vote? Well, this, of course, is one of the aftershocks of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade uh, that now eliminates federal protections for abortion rights. And there had been some effort among Democrats uh, to try to bring up legislation to codify Roe v. Wade. That uh, fell short. But now they've moved on to same-sex marriage, which, first of all, let's be clear, enjoys broad popular support per polling uh, and has for a number of years now, um, it is seen as not being all that politically toxic for most Republicans. But yet, at least so far, it has fallen short, as you said. This is still another Democrat's effort spooked by what happened with Roe v. Wade, spooked by that uh, concurrent opinion by Justice Thomas that the court may examine these other rights. This is an effort to solidify them. Uh, And some Republicans have come out in favor, including some unlikely ones. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson yesterday said he didn't believe it was necessary, but if a vote came up, he would vote for it. Um, But they haven't yet gotten to 10. Um, So at the moment, it remains unclear whether they'll reach that number uh, in the next couple of weeks. And Susan, how much protection would this bill actually offer if the Supreme Court decided to reconsider the marriage issue, which we should note it has not so far? It it has not, although Justice uh, uh, Justice Thomas has suggested that as the next step. This would uh, require any state. I I believe that under the the provisions of this law, a state could choose to stop issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, but they would be required to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. Uh, and So I believe that's the way it codifies some federal protections for same-sex marriage. You know, this this uh, legislation may not get over the finish line, but man, it's come so much farther than I think even its supporters expected. The idea that, 50, that 47 Republicans in the House voted for it as a sign of how divided the GOP is on this on this issue on which they used to be quite united. I remember back in the 2004 presidential campaign when when uh, Karl Rove and George W. Bush used same-sex marriage as a big wedge, wedge issue. It, it united Republicans. It divided Democrats. That is reversed now. Democrats are quite united in support of same-sex marriage. Now it is Republicans who are divided on this issue. It is a sign of a big sea change, I think, in American culture and in attitudes towards same-sex marriage. I, I think the big question with this is how real of a concern is this scenario? And certainly for, for many people, people are, are very concerned about it. I, I don't mean to question that. But, you know, Jonathan, you mentioned that there is widespread support for same-sex marriage. There was not as strong but widespread support for Roe v. Wade among the public, and it was overturned. I mean, Jonathan, any any thoughts on the likelihood of this actually coming before the Supreme Court? I think at this point, Democrats don't want to take a chance. Um, you know, uh, it is Roe v. Wade for a long time was considered a matter of settled law. We know that justices who, in their confirmation hearings were asked that question, and a number of them said yes, it was, and then yet voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. And for I think Democrats who you know know that the, the, the effort and the conservative circles, and at least part, portions of conservative circles, to overturn Roe v. Wade was decades in the making. Um, this does not have nearly that runway. Uh, but I think that there are Democrats who just feel like, look, this is one existential right that was just taken away from uh, Americans. We don't want to risk another. 
Um, there doesn't seem to be as much momentum here on the right to overturn same-sex marriage. So there's a real chance that it would never come to be. But I think what we're seeing here right now is a, a, a Democratic Party burned once already trying to take no chances. Nearly 30 states have issued heat advisories this week as temperatures reach 90 degrees and much higher in some places. On Wednesday, President Biden unveiled a new plan to tackle extreme heat. This crisis impacts every aspect of our everyday life. That's why today I'm making the largest investment ever, $2.3 billion to help communities across the country build infrastructure that's designed to withstand the full range of disasters we've been seeing up to today. That was President Biden speaking during a trip to Somerset, Massachusetts on Wednesday. Jonathan, what's included in this $2.3 billion investment? I think a lot of Democrats would say not enough. I mean, it's a step in the right direction to try to convert old power plants to green energy sources. It's an effort to help communities build up in cleaner infrastructure. But it falls short in terms of what they had president and a lot of Democrats wanted to do. And they had widespread uh, sweeping climate change legislation that was last year part of the president's Build Back Better Act, which, of course, we know fell apart at year's end, uh, mostly due to the hand of Senator Joe Manchin, himself a supporter of fossil fuels. Uh, and representing a big coal mining state in West Virginia. Uh, And yet, earlier in the last month or two, there had been some renewed momentum in Congress, in the Senate, for another bill that would include not as many, but still substantial climate change provisions. And that, too, has fallen apart, as Manchin again blocks it, saying he's too concerned about spending right now and because of rising inflation, uh, and he doesn't want to go forward with it. Now, he has since said that he might be open to reconsidering it again later this summer. I don't think many in the White House are holding their breath on that. So in the interim, they are issuing some executive orders. The president uh, rolled out a few of them on Wednesday in Massachusetts uh, and hinted, though he did not that day declare a national climate emergency, hinted that that could still be something that comes in the weeks ahead. Yeah, Susan, why didn't he declare that emergency? Well, he told reporters afterwards that he was still, quote, running the traps on whether he had the authority uh, to do that. But uh, John John Kerry, who, of course, handles the international side of climate change for the Biden administration, said that it's only a matter of timing. Kerry said that that President Biden would declare a climate emergency. That is likely to then get mired in the courts. We would expect some Republican uh, states to take action to try to to block that. Uh, But... It was the the president's language this week was interesting because even though he didn't declare it formally at a climate emergency, he used the emerge the word emergency over and over again in his in his speech. And he also described this as an existential threat to the country and to the world. And I think those Democrats who want him to do more point to that language and say, if it's an existential threat, if it's an emergency, why aren't you doing more? I mean, what's in the scope of his power to do, though, without Congress? Jonathan, what, what can he do through executive action on this issue? As, you know, as discussed, it's, it's, it's limited. I mean, there, there, is, there are some more levers he can turn. They can, he has to obviously pull levers in the federal agencies. There are restrictions. They can uh, you know, channel more funding. But first of all, we also had a Supreme Court that gutted the authority of the EPA just a few weeks ago. And what was another blow to the Biden agenda, saying that they couldn't uh, oversee as much over the states as had once been believed. Um, and the other issue, to answer the question you just posed to Susan as well, is that per my reporting, is that part of the reason why the White House didn't move forward with this climate uh, emergency declaration is 
They're afraid of angering Manchin, whose vote they still need on a lot of things. First of all, to get this skinny bill through, the, what is going to survive, it looks like, are Obamacare subsidies and trying to raid, lower the price of prescription drugs, insulin among it. And they're afraid of turning him off. It's a 50-50 Senate. They can't lose his vote on that or any sort of confirmation up ahead. So they want to wait a little bit to make sure they put that legislation to bed before the next steps. They'll listen to Manchin again later this summer to, once the next inflation data comes out to see if he would be willing to move on legislation. So they want to wait for that. And if that falls short, which is what they expect, then he might go ahead, the president might go ahead and issue this uh, declaration. Karen emailed this question. I haven't heard why the Capitol building was left so vulnerable on January 6th. Why were so many people able to get past security? Susan, can you say anything about security preparations ahead of January 6th? What do we know about that? Yeah, your your listener is not the only one who's wondered why there wasn't uh, uh, better security uh, there. Clearly, there should have been. There were warnings. Uh, there, law enforcement agencies were aware of the possibility of this uh, big gathering uh, potentially getting out of hand. Uh, so the, the security should have been fe- stronger at the Capitol. And that's been the subject of, of some considerable investigation and prompted some resignations on the part of Capitol Hill officials who were charged with that duty. We also have another question about January 6th. I'm not sure if either one of you would know the answer, but a guy emails us the question, can one of your panelists give us a definitive statement on how many Secret Service personnel have had their texts turned over and over what period of time? Jonathan, what is known about what's happening behind the scenes there? I believe it was a couple of dozen, but don't quote me the specific number of agents who have been as part of this. Exactly one text message exchange was turned over per uh, per reporting by some of our colleagues uh, here in Washington. It is certainly a source of great consternation uh, from the the members of the January 6th Select Committee. They are still efforting other means of trying to achieve that data, but at least at this point, per their statement of uh, 24 hours or so ago, they do believe uh, that that those text messages have probably been lost forever, and they fear that it would deprive them of a real window into what was happening first on the Capitol because of the details surrounding Vice President Pence, who were trying to get him to safety, Pence refusing to leave the premises, and of course, the president, uh, who was at the Ellipse and then retreats to the White House. He had a detail with him at all times. If they had been texting about what he was doing, that would be able to let investigators add to their case. And quickly, Susan, in 30 seconds or so, Michelle asks if the Secret Service could be brought in to testify about this. Yes, will be. They're pursuing efforts uh, to interview the Secret Secret Service agents who were on duty uh, uh, during that day of January 6th. Uh, And and some of them have now, we know, retained private counsel as they have talks with the committee about their testimony. So if we can't get the text themselves, we may be able to hear from the people who sent them. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. As we turn now to talking about COVID, I want to bring in one more voice with considerable expertise on this issue. Lauren Weber is the Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Of course, we're going to talk about BA5, the latest Omicron variant. It now makes up almost 78% of new U.S. COVID infections. And of course, not even the president is immune. President Biden tested positive on Thursday. This is happening against the backdrop of another infectious disease outbreak, monkeypox. So first of all, Lauren, what do we know about President Biden's health after he tested positive for COVID? You know, so far, the White House has said he has a he has a pretty mild case that his symptoms so far are consistent with a runny nose, a dry cough. You know, it's important to note that the president is both double vaccinated and double boosted. So he, uh, you know, is very protected from in that sense with COVID. Um, that said, he has also started taking Paxlovid, which is an antiviral pill that can help reduce the risk for hospitalization. So, so far, the health experts seem to think he's, he's doing just fine. Um, you know, he was pictured yesterday getting back to work, so to speak. And I, I think for the American public, it's just a reminder it's not just the president that has COVID these days. A lot of your friends and family do too. And that's just the matter of the fact that we're living in rising case numbers these days. Yeah, I think uh, the last holdouts in my life who had not had it yet have had it now. It's um, it's going around. Um, I want to ask you more about that, Lauren, though, about Paxlovid. That's a, a treatment we hear about a lot. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, back at the beginning days of COVID, I think it's important to compare to when President Trump had COVID to when now President Biden has COVID. When Trump had COVID, there was no vaccines, there was no Paxlovid. Now we have Paxlovid, which is, an, you know, obviously Biden has been vaccinated. And there are also these pills you can take, which, you know, are shown statistically in research studies to reduce the chances of hospitalization by 90 percent. So so pretty fabulous results. Um, now, some real world studies of the implementation of this are still a little bit not sure on the actual numbers of that. But statistically, they've been shown to severely reduce your chance of having a very severe case of COVID. They are available to the American public. And a lot of physicians uh, would recommend that if you are at high risk of having a bad COVID case, which is if you are immunocompromised, older, or have other risk factors, that it's certainly something they recommend you be taking if you become infected with COVID-19. And Jonathan, as Lauren mentioned, the president is double vaccinated, double boosted, but he still got COVID. Could the diagnosis change his thinking around White House COVID protocols or even more broadly around government COVID mandates? My colleagues and I wrote about this today for Politico, and the answer is no, at least not in a substantial way, at least not yet. Uh, I mean, the White House, look, is project trying to project this idea um, that the society has to move forward. The economy has to move forward, even with the risk of COVID. And the, it, the, it was striking a few months ago when their tenor changed, when for most of his time in office, there was an effort, they really say, we're going to try to shield the president from COVID. A few months ago, they said, look, the likelihood is eventually he'll get it, but he'll be fine because he has been double boosted and double vaccinated uh, and has access to therapeutics. So, you know, that he should have a favorable outcome despite being 79 years old, which is obviously a higher risk category. Um, they believe, that at least so far, other than more masks being spotted on the White House campus in the last 24 hours or so, there hasn't been any real substantial change. One wonders if they will, at least around the edges, do that um, on the, in the White House of presidential travel. The president and a lot of his aides have, have gotten a lot more lax about wearing masks, even on some international travel that he's had recently. 
and it's impossible to know at least yet exactly when he got uh, COVID, but it is po- it's certainly the timing would work that maybe at the end of his Middle East trip, uh, which just concluded over the weekend, is uh, is there. Uh, but what I can tell you right now, we haven't actually received an update on his health since last night, uh, but at, at the time his symptoms were mild. And right now the White House trying to do contact tracing for his day on Wednesday, which is when he traveled to Massachusetts and had a contact with a whole host of people. That was the day before his own diagnosis, so he was likely contagious. You know, Susan, I've seen some schadenfreude, I guess, from some prominent conservatives since the president's diagnosis. And I think we saw the same thing when Dr. Fauci was diagnosed a while back. Does I mean, and of course, we know that that uh, this is a virulent strain and there's a ton of research that makes very clear that people who are vaccinated and boosted are much less likely to get very sick. But nonetheless, does the president's diagnosis complicate the effort to combat misinformation and manage the pandemic? Well, I think it. I think it reflects the idea that uh, the nation, including people at the White House, are moving from thinking of of COVID as something that we're going to end and made it into something we're going to live with. And we live with it by getting vaccinated, by getting boosted. Uh, That's why the president can have symptoms that are so mild and can do a video that shows him looking pretty good, even though he... He has COVID, so I think it's. I think it is part of a part of a progression we've seen in attitudes, uh, in attitudes about this uh, about this disease. Uh, you know, may, maybe the day will come when every one of us has had COVID. I, I haven't had it. Have you had it, Sarah? I had it back in oh, May. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But congratulations. I hope you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm knocking on wood. It's probably a dangerous thing to say out loud. Um, On to another infectious disease. 2,500 cases of monkeypox have been reported in the U.S., the first case back in May. I want to ask you, Lauren, how prepared the U.S. healthcare system is to fight this new virus? You know, a lot of people like to think that the U.S. public health system works like Amazon Prime. Like in two days, things will be delivered to you and things will be fine. The reality is, is that Florida officials, Missouri officials, public health officials across the country are counting monkeypox cases via fax. So the bottom line is, is that we are seeing a pretty battered public health system that has, you know, that is currently dealing with COVID and has faced a lot of burnout, a lot of resignations, and a lot of attacks on its authority now have to turn its eye also to monkeypox. And it's it's not going great so far. A did lot I, of experts I, are worried. Did I hear you right there? Did you oh, say they're counting by fax, like fax machines? Yes, yes, by fax machines, which, you know, at the beginning and stages of COVID, we were also doing as well. I think a lot of experts say it reflects, you know, we're living through this pandemic. You would think that our infrastructure would be updated, right? You would think that COVID would shine this light and that the infrastructure would change. But yeah, we're still counting monkeypox cases by fax. One more question for you, Lauren, about monkeypox. In the U.S. and Europe, the vast majority of cases have been among gay men, and it's mostly spread through skin-to-skin contact, so unlike COVID. How are sexual health care providers responding to the outbreak? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it, it spread, it's not considered a sexually transmitted infection, but since it is spread by close contact, uh, primarily among networks of men having sex with men, a lot of times people don't want to go talk to their doctor. They'd rather go to an anonymous sexual health clinic where they don't have a personal relationship with the provider because they feel more comfortable doing that. The problem is in this country is that we have underfunded sexual health clinics and sexual transmitted infection prevention for years. Since 2003, if you count for inflation, the CDC budget to prevent sexually transmitted infections has fallen 43%. That's a lot. That's a, that's a large percentage of drop-off, especially considered 
that the U.S. is currently in a huge STI crisis of syphilis, gonorrhea, and other issues. So, you know, monkeypox is just coming into the system that is, is pretty underfunded and not as well equipped to deal with this as it should be. As COVID-19 and monkeypox cases grow, the ability for public health agencies to step in is at risk. A new wave of litigation from conservative groups seeks to curb public health authority at the local, state, and federal levels. Jonathan, can you tell us about the focus of this litigation? I think we're seeing it, of course, as a reaction to what they feel was government overreach during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, as mentioned in a previous segment, we've had the Supreme Court strike back uh, on authority of other federal agencies. And certainly it's long been a conservative wish to shrink the size of government. And I think that particularly Republican governors found some of the regulations early on on, on masks and then vaccine requirements in particular as onerous. Uh, we saw a lot of uh, those governors defy the guidelines of the federal government, um, particularly in some deep red states. Uh, and I th- that it seems to be, and, and we saw Dr. Fauci become almost a caricature of a, of a villain uh, for some on, on the right. And this is uh, certainly, it seems to be the next step on that same political path. Susan, what do we know about where this is coming from? Who's behind it? You know, one of the extraordinary things about this uh, COVID pandemic is is the way it's made a public health issue so partisan. So we saw an early divide about uh, whether the government should set rules. Uh, the federal government or state government set rules about uh, whether you had to uh, whether you had to wear a mask or or uh, wh- whether schools should be shut down and re- uh, restricted to to online learning. And that has really just built over this pandemic. And to the point now, uh, and Lauren might know more about this, that we're one of the predictors of whether you've been vaccinated is what political party you belong to. Democrats overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority of Democrats have been vaccinated against COVID. But the, the group that has not been vaccinated, they tend to be Republicans. And that's not something I would have predicted when this uh, when this disease first broke out. I wonder, Lauren, how these legal battles, if they're successful, could affect the government's ability to prevent or respond to future pandemics and other outbreaks of infectious disease. Yeah, you know, my investigation on Monday uh, really pointed out the risk of that. You know, a lot of public health officials said to me that the litigation that has been really successfully brought by religious liberty groups, Republican attorneys general, and conservative state think tanks has been wildly successful at the local, state, and federal level and has has really recast Americans' ability to deal with both this outbreak and the next. I mean, it's limited the ability for public health officials to close down schools in Wisconsin. It stopped mask mandates in Missouri. It has the ability to alter quarantine and even basic rights like vaccination um, exemptions could be could be thrown out. Um, there are cases that are trying to wind their way up to the Supreme Court that these groups have brought that could put some of these things in jeopardy. And so many public health experts, um, Lawrence Gostin told me, you know, Americans will rue the day over this litigation because they, they feel that it's forever curtailed some of the public health powers that the United States has been used to being able to use in the past. And Lauren, one of our listeners, Dennis, emailed with a question. He says, I was given Paxlovid for my mild case of COVID. The side effects of it were pretty intense. I quit after day three out of five. Lauren, what can you tell us about the side effects? Is that a common experience? 
I think some of the side effects can be a little bit more intense. I, I want to caution, I am not a medical professional, so I do not, do not want to give advice on whether or not you should quit a medication. But I, I do believe they can be more intense. But if you are someone that is immunocompromised or at higher risk, they may be much better than being hospitalized. So oftentimes that's why doctors do continue to prescribe it. Before we wrap up, let's turn to abortion. An abortion provider in Indiana has taken steps to sue the state's Republican Attorney General, Todd Rokita. Susan Page, have you been following this story? And and what is the significance of this abortion provider fighting back, essentially, here? Man, the whole whole nation's been following this story since ever since the Indianapolis Star reported that a 10-year-old from Ohio had had to travel, a 10-year-old from Indiana had had to travel to Ohio. From Ohio to Indiana. From Ohio to Indiana. Thank you very much. Both Midwestern states, I'm from Kansas, I should know them, uh, in order to get abortion services after she she had been raped. And first there was conservative speculation about whether this was a true story. It turns out it was. A man was uh, indicted for the rape of this little girl. Uh, you know, the the Indiana Attorney General uh, has, on Fox News and elsewhere, has attacked the doctor who performed the abortion, saying maybe she didn't report it as required by law, and maybe she violated the, the girl's privacy by doing this. The doctor says that's not the case. Uh, there, She did, in fact, report it as required by law, uh, she is now filed, uh, indicated that she will file a lawsuit against the Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita uh, about what the Attorney General said about her uh, on Fox News. So it's a very, it's a combative stance for a doctor to take on an issue that's just going to get bigger as we see more and more states restrict abortion in the wake of that Supreme Court decision. And I would just like to add to all of that that uh, the state of Indiana produced documents last week demonstrating that she had indeed reported that procedure. Um, so, you know, one one piece of evidence that at least in that case and, and some others that were included in those same documents she, she was reporting. Jonathan, how does this sort of interstate uh, dispute fit into the broader legal landscape around abortion rights right now? Oh, it's a significant piece of it. As we see a number of states move, some have already moved to ban abortion uh, or severely, severely curtail it, and others are on their way to do so. Uh, the Urden, the ability, the, the need of, of a person to travel across state lines to receive a, an abortion uh, is going to be, remain in the spotlight here. The, the Biden administration is pressed repeatedly as to what more they can do to safeguard that ability, and they've said that they will. The Department of Justice would be involved. They've also been asked whether they would set up uh, perhaps on federal land or military bases clinics that could provide the, the procedure. Uh, at least for now, they're shying away from that, believing that there would still be legal jeopardy, perhaps, for the individuals once they leave the federal property. Um, but yeah, the idea of travel and, and abortion rights is something that's at the forefront right now. Uh, you know, Here we are just a month, not even quite a month after the Supreme Court's uh, momentous decision. We've been talking with Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico. His new book is coming out Tuesday. Congratulations, by the way, Jonathan. It's called The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and the author of Madam Speaker. And Lauren Weber is the Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Susan, Jonathan, Lauren, thanks all of you so much for joining us today. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. 
You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. And we start with news from one part of the world not known for its sweltering summers, the UK. This isn't a one-off, a freak weather event. It's something that we're going to have to get used to. For as long as our emissions continue to warm the planet, and at the moment temperatures are rising by a quarter of a degree every 10 years, heat waves like this one are going to become more frequent and more intense. That's Jonah Fisher, the BBC's climate correspondent, talking about this week's record-breaking temperatures felt by millions of people in Europe. We'll hear more about that and touch on big stories from Italy, China, and of course, Ukraine. But first, let's get to our panel. Idris Ali is here in D.C. He's a foreign policy correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Idris, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Joyce Karam is a senior correspondent for The National. Joyce, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sarah. Also joining us is the editor of Foreign Affairs, Daniel kurtz Phelan. He's also the author of The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks. Great to be here. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Russian military tasks are now extending beyond the eastern Donbass region. In a Pentagon briefing, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, shared this assessment. There is a grinding war of attrition that is occurring in the in the Luhansk Donbass region, Luhansk Donetsk, the two oblasts of, uh, of Donbass. And to answer your question about is the Donbass lost? No, it's not lost yet. Uh, the Ukrainians are making the Russians pay for every inch of territory that they gain. Idris, Milley mentions this has become a drawn-out conflict. In March, Russia's defense ministry claimed that its main goal was to, quote, liberate Donbass. Geographically, what is the strategy of targeting that area? Yeah, I think it's worth uh, sort of looking back at where we started and where we are. Uh, The invasion started on February 24th, and the aim then was to essentially take over all of Ukraine, um, topple the Zelensky government and install sort of officials who were sympathetic to Russia. Um, Fast forward to July, and they are basically in a situation where they've given up their aim of taking over the capital of Kyiv, some of the western parts of the country, and have now really focused on the east and the Donbass region. Um, Parts of the region, including Crimea, were already sort of under Russian-backed control when they were annexed in 2014. And now, because of U.S.-supplied weapons, Ukrainian forces, and the strategies they're using, they have been able to limit the um, the sort of success that the Russians have had to really the parts of the country that are closest to the Russian borders in the east. Um, In terms of what the the significance is, obviously for Russia, it's important because those are parts of the country that are closest to their border. But really, in terms of strategic value, they don't place much um, because, you know, the capital of Kyiv remains largely untouched other than some missile strikes. The Zelensky government continues to operate. And and the Ukrainians have put us up really remarkable resistance. And in some cases, we're seeing Russia really making only a kilometer or two advances per day and paying heavy in terms of casualties. We had some reporting early this morning that they're losing um, hundreds of of service members every day. So, uh, you know, to to, to General Milley's point, it's it's really this war which has become this grinding um, ground invasion that doesn't seem to be going anywhere fast. 
And Joyce, what does the Russian foreign minister's comment about extending beyond the Donbass region signal for you in, in terms both of Russia's war goals and how Russia perceives the war to be going? Uh, no, Sarah, Sarah, this is something we've heard before uh, from uh, the Russians, from, uh, I mean, Putin didn't sugarcoat it at all when he said Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, so uh, the goal early on was uh, to take uh, uh, these territories in the east and connect them uh, to uh, Crimea in uh, the south. Now, is this uh, is this an easy task or is this a mission that's going to be accomplished fairly soon? It doesn't uh, look like it. So uh, it looks more that Lavrov's comments are intended for a domestic uh, audience to just shore up uh, support for the war. Uh, but when we look uh, at what Idris mentioned at the grinding uh, fight in the Donbass, at the uh, you know tit for tat um, infighting in uh, Kherson, this is this is uh, going to be a grinding war, a uh, war of attrition, and it doesn't look like uh, the Western world, uh, the U.S. and its allies are anywhere near fatigued in uh, supporting Ukraine and uh, sending it weapons. Now, according to U.S. intelligence, Moscow is planning to claim sovereignty over land that isn't theirs. The Russian government is reviewing detailed plans to purportedly annex a number of regions in Ukraine, including Kherson, Zaporizhia, all of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Russia is attempting to set the conditions on the ground by seeking to establish branches of Russian banks to establish the ruble as the default currency in these areas and to sabotage civilian Internet access. That's John Kirby, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications. Dan, Kirby went on to say that Ukrainians are also being forced to apply for Russian citizenship. He said this is part of Russia's annexation playbook. Why does Russia want this land in particular? So part of, part of the value here is that this, this land, these two southern provinces, connect what had been since 2014 occupied territory in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, with Crimea, which which Russia annexed in, in 2014. And when Kirby talks about the annexation playbook and, and the, some of the steps that he describes Russia taking in these southern parts of Ukraine to suggest they're annexing Ukrainian territory, he's looking back at what Russia did when it annexed Crimea in 2014. And that's things like, you know, as you mentioned, uh, forcing Ukrainians to apply for, for to take Russian passports, um, installing leaders with no connection to Ukraine at all, as Russia has done in the city of, of Kherson, which it was the, the first major city it managed to take in southern Ukraine. Uh, it installed a leader who will uh, reportedly, according to U.S. intelligence, try to hold a referendum suggesting that the residents really want to be part of Russia. So what, what this would allow, if they are able to go through with this, is a continuous Russian annexed or occupied territory going from those territories in eastern Ukraine and providing what's often talked about as a land bridge to Crimea, which was annexed in 2014. And what, you know, what this suggests, along with, as, as Joyce and Idris pointed out, the likelihood that uh, this grinding war will go on and continue to have great human and, and strategic costs for all involved, uh, it, it also really should remind us that negotiations are, are pretty far off. You know, you can imagine various formulas that uh, would allow going back to where things sit on February 24th. But these new Russian ambitions suggest that there's not a lot of space for negotiation that would allow both sides to come up with some kind of face-saving compromise. 
Ukraine and Russia have signed a deal to allow stockpiled grain to be exported through the Black Sea. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Turkey's president worked with Russian and Ukrainian delegations to release millions of tons of grain that have been stuck in ports due to the war. Joyce, what do we know about this deal and what it could mean for countries who rely on Ukrainian grain? Uh, This is a really big deal that we just saw today uh, being signed uh, in Turkey, uh, Sarah. Uh, What we've seen is Ukrainian infrastructure minister uh, and uh, Russian defense minister, they signed separate deals uh, with UN Secretary General uh, Guterres and Turkish defense minister uh, Akar. Uh, This is a big deal because it could free up uh, 18 million tons of Ukrainian uh, wheat and uh, grain that's been uh, blockaded in uh, Ukrainian uh, ports by uh, by uh, Russian military. Uh, it would also allow Russia to export its fertilizer. Uh, so uh, when, when we talk about uh, you know uh, food security, uh, the impact of this can't be uh, understated. Uh, the impact of the Ukrainian uh, war. I mean, Ukraine as you know, is known as the breadbasket uh, of the world, is, uh, has gone as affecting over 16 uh, countries that haven't been able to get uh, their supply uh, of grain. Uh, now, uh, as the agreement itself, we don't know all the details. Uh, how is it going to be implemented? Who will be inspecting the ships and uh, who will be demining uh, the ports? We are still waiting to see answers for uh, these questions. Uh, but so far, uh, this is no doubt it's a major, major uh, breakthrough uh, for the United Nations, uh, for Turkey and for uh, global uh, food security. Russia restarted delivery of gas from the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to the European bloc on Thursday. It had been shut down for 10 days due to maintenance. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, warned that countries will need to cut back on their natural gas use until spring. Putin is trying to push us around this winter, and he will dramatically fail if we stick together and we'll get then stronger out of this crisis than we went into this crisis. I'm deeply convinced. Dan, that is some pretty bold talk, but how bad could things get for members of the European Union this winter, briefly? Europe is facing a really terrifying energy situation. Before the war, it got roughly 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia. So as Russia uses that as leverage, as Europeans commit to reducing their dependence on Russia, so they send less money to Russia, uh, you have this perfect storm where uh, you could have rationing and shortages in European cities. And that, among other things, would have really major strategic consequences because you'll have politicians who will face angry publics who are not able to heat their homes. Global warming caused mainly by human activity is to blame for extreme weather much of the world felt this week. That includes heat waves across Europe and an ongoing devastating drought in the Horn of Africa. My colleague at NPR, East Africa correspondent Ader Peralta, spoke to Guyo Roba of the Jamil Observatory for Food Security. Between 20 to 30 million people in Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia will be acutely food insecure. And out of that, maybe like 7 million children are severely malnourished by September. We're actually looking at the most prolonged drought and maybe most devastating. Joyce, what has the lack of rainfall meant for people living in this region of Africa? 
mean, no matter how you look at this, it's a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, we're looking at the worst of uh, the four waves of droughts that that region has seen in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, it's affecting, um, as, as uh, you know, the interview we mentioned, uh, millions uh, of, of people, uh, half of them are uh, our children in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, Eritrea, and uh, Djibouti. So uh, this is something that deserves immediate uh, attention. Uh, the UN is predicting uh, that the next rainy season will also fail uh, that, uh, that region. Uh, now keep in mind, Sarah, that a uh, lot of these countries are experiencing conflict when we look internally at Ethiopia, when we look at uh, Somalia, when we look at the water conflict between Ethiopia Ethiopia uh, and Egypt. So, uh, so it, it can't be overstated how urgent is is this uh, this problem, and uh, it deserves a humanitarian uh, response. Uh, uh, you know, from a climate uh, emergency standpoint and from a political uh, stability standpoint for the Horn uh, of Africa. So, Idris, speaking of that urgency. What is being done internationally to help, if anything? Yeah, so we saw uh, the U.S. Development Agency, USAID, give Kenya about $250 million, uh, $255 million in emergency assistance. And they are basically calling um, for, for countries around the world to continue to fund and to help these countries because, you know, we're basically, there, there are two rainy seasons, March to May and then um, October to December. And the prediction right now is that the October to December rain season will also fail, which would be the fifth consecutive rainy season um, where things don't work out. So it's, it's been this, you know, obviously a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's been building for years and years and years now. And, um, you know, the one thing a, a lot of humanitarian aid agencies say is it's not just the fact that it hasn't rained. It's the fact that there was a pandemic. So that led to issues with food production. Um, there were there were locust issues um, in, in the region. And, you know, the one thing that uh, we talked about in the earlier segment is Ukraine and, and, and Russia and that the food supply being impacted there. So there's some hope that the deal that was just struck that we talked about might lead to some more food. Um, but the, the, the hope right now is that governments can backfill it with aid. Um, and, and then, you know, they're sort of looking at longer term solutions. It's one that, you know, could take decades really to, to solve. Moving on to another continent that is feeling the devastating effects of climate change, Europe is suffering through a sweltering heat wave. Officials, health officials there say more than 2,000 people have died in Spain and Portugal because of the heat. On Tuesday, the temperature at Heathrow Airport in London passed 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That is the highest recording there ever. Dan, why is the heat wave proving so deadly in Europe? Well, the... the um it, you know, this varies a bit a, a, a country to country, but especially in the UK, you know, this is not a place that is built for uh, extreme heat. This is a place where cities are designed to keep people warm, not to not to keep people cool. So you have uh, less air conditioning. You have, you know, public services like the tube that do not have the kind of uh, uh, climate control that you would expect in other cities. And, and that means that you, you have uh, a community that's not used to dealing with this, but you also have all sorts of knock-on effects that have uh, consequences of their own. So you've seen wildfires uh, all over Europe um, in places that are not used to dealing with those kind of threats. You have, uh, as, as you mentioned at the top, 
uh, something like 2,000 people who have died in Spain and Portugal, and many of those are uh, vulnerable populations, so elderly or homeless people who might not have access to services and certainly not to air conditioning. So these are these are places that are not accustomed to this kind of heat, but what these this summer and, and previous heat waves and previous summers have told us is that this is something that these places are going to be dealing with quite regularly going forward, and that has huge consequences, especially in the context of these discussions about energy around Ukraine. You know, this could be a really important moment for Europe where it decides whether it's going to double down on renewables or move backwards and in, in going back to dirty sources like coal, which will make these kind of heat waves only more common going forward. Staying in the UK for a moment, the record-breaking heat there was not the only big news this week. The race to replace Boris Johnson as the prime minister is now down to two people. And at this point, I'm pleased to say we can call on the insight and expertise of Matthew Holhouse. He covers British politics for The Economist, and he joins us on the line from London. So can you tell us who will be the next British prime minister? That, that would be uh, quite a prediction. Look, um, we, we're through to the final two candidates. Rishi Sunak, he was the UK's uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer or Finance Minister uh, throughout the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, facing him is Liz Truss, who is the serving Foreign Secretary now. Polls of Conservative Party members who will make the final choice between these two candidates uh, over the summer as they're balloted. Those polls suggest that Truss is the favourite to win. Uh, now, how firmly you, you can you know, rely on that is an open question. Will the polls move over the course of the debates? We're going to see them do multiple hustings around the country. Uh, there's also a question exactly how reliable these polls of, of party members are, because party members are quite a small subset of the broader population. But based on what we're seeing so far, um, trust is certainly the favourite, and, and bookmakers seem to seem to think that too. What, if anything, do these two finalists say about the direction of UK politics right now? This is a very interesting contest in that Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister during the 1980s, you know, a really titanic figure in uh, 20th century British history, uh, still um, you know, commands a, a real um, influence over the Conservative Party. Many of them look, look at her as you know, possibly one of the greatest prime ministers they've ever had. She still influences a lot of their thinking. What we're seeing in this contest is actually a, a face-off between two candidates who really... Um, draw very, very heavily on her legacy in a way which we haven't seen for some time. So they're both positioning themselves as heirs to to Thatcher. What does that mean in reality? Well, uh, Liz Truss, let's start with her. She says that Britain needs um, quite dramatic tax cuts, something that uh, Thatcher is is well known for during the course of her administration. And it needs them immediately. She says that um, growth is going to be choked off, recession is is going to set in. because of the tax rises that Sunak has overseen. She's extremely uh, Thatcherite or possibly even uh, Reaganite in in her rhetoric on foreign policy as well. She sees the confrontation between the UK, perhaps the the broader West, uh, Russia and China as almost a civilizational clash. She talks about the battle for freedom, the struggle between the free world and and, um, autocracies, which is a very sort of Reaganite idea. Um, that, that is very attractive to many Conservative Party members. Uh, Sunak himself, though, is, is, is a Thatcherite. He also grew up in the 1980s. He did very well in, in the city of London, making money, the you know, institutions created by Thatcher's 
um, deregulation of, of financial services in the 1980s. He says that the lesson of Thatcherism actually is about balanced budgets and combating inflation. He says that has to be the priority. That means that he is rejecting um, Truss's proposals to cut taxes immediately, saying that actually cutting taxes would only fuel inflation. So we're seeing a real sort of, uh, you know, it's fascinating. Often these 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 leadership contests can be quite insubstantial affairs, you know, focusing on the, your melange of issues and, and driven by personality. Actually, we have a, a real intellectual clash here about the, the meaning of one of the, you know, the most influential figures in, in the Conservative Party history. Mm-hmm. Also this week, a few parting words in the House of Commons from the outgoing Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Remember, a bubble, it's not Twitter that counts. It's the people that sent us here. And yes, uh, the the, the last few years have been the greatest privilege of of my life. I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. A rather unique and memorable goodbye there. Matthew, any any clues as to what Johnson will do next, briefly? What will Boris Johnson do next is the question that is entertaining uh, British politics right now. So he could go off and make some speeches. You you can earn a lot of money doing addresses to banks and and corporations. Some of his predecessors have done very well on that, made £100,000 a time. Uh, there is you know, there, there are jokes going around that he would like to be the master of Balliol College, Oxford. It's one of the you know, most prestigious positions in academia. He studied at Balliol. Uh, I'm sure that will cause much mirth around, around high table there. Um, but there is this continuing idea as well that he fancies a comeback because he feels that he has been unjustly removed from office by... MPs who he thinks are cowards, who have panicked at the first sight of wobbles in the polls, and that they will struggle to win elections without him. So one of the theories doing the rounds is that he's going to wait for his successor to fall flat on their face, and he's going to make a great comeback. Now, whether that's whether that's true or not, I'm sceptical. I mean, I, I think if you look at polling on Boris Johnson as he was leaving office, you know, he, he really is sort of pretty unpopular. He's pretty toxic with a lot of the Conservative Party electorates. So that would be a, a surprising turn of events. But one of the things that we've learned from you know following the career of Boris Johnson is that it's it's always a mistake to bet against him. You know, if he if he says he's going to do something, then, then you know don't rule out the idea that he's going to have a try. That's Matthew Holhouse, British politics correspondent for The Economist. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you. Italy is headed for an early election. On Thursday, its president accepted the resignation of the country's prime minister, Mario Draghi. The collapse of the government and uncertainty over who Italian voters will elect has dealt a destabilizing blow to a nation whose economy is the third largest in the eurozone. Dan, break it down for us if you would. Why did this happen? So this is in some ways a return to the norm of Italian politics. It's not exactly a place that has been known for political stability over the last several years, but it's also really the last thing that Europe needs at this particular moment in history. Mario Draghi had been the prime minister for the last a uh, year and a half or so, and had been this uh, this figure who managed to bring together a national unity government. He provided a degree of of competence and stability in in a political system that tends to reward more uh, flamboyant figures and have a degree of instability. But he'd been keeping this uh, rather strange coalition together. And as the other members of that coalition started to come apart, he thought that he couldn't he couldn't keep this national unity government together any longer. And so as he saw what was happening. There was a, a vote in parliament in which his coalition partners sat out and didn't, didn't uh, support his government again. He turned to Italy's president and tendered his resignation, which means that Italy will go into elections 
this coming fall, very likely, probably in September. And what that what that holds is uh, will have huge consequences for Italy, of course, but also for Europe. Either uh, signs that the the Italian right will come back into power with the rather flamboyant former Prime Minister uh, Silvio Berlusconi kind of pulling strings behind uh, behind the scenes. And that could have economic consequences. It will also have consequences for European unity over Ukraine. There's a lot of uh, pro-Russian sympathy and more skepticism about support for Ukraine among some of those quarters. So if Italy starts to go wobbly, that could really have broader consequences uh, as the war continues. One listener tweeted us, geography informs Putin's goals from control of warm water ports to the Sea of Azaz. It is not just about the easternmost territories. Idris, there was a deal between, uh, we spoke earlier about the uh, the grain deal, and that comes after President Vladimir Putin finished a trilateral meeting in Tehran with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. The focus of that trip was on Syria. Um, can you tell us some of the key takeaways from that meeting? Yeah, so I mean, you know, this was President Putin's first visit to um, a country outside the former Soviet bloc since the invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, on, on its face, the fact that he is now traveling beyond, you know, the former Soviet bloc shows a level of comfort that he has with the way the war is going. Um, on the face of it, the, the focus was Syria. It's one of the places where Russia and Iran um, sort of, you know, interact vis-a-vis Iranian proxies and Russian forces that are there. But what we also found out before uh, President Putin went to Iran was that Russia is looking to buy some Iranian drones that could help them in the fight um, in Ukraine, because those are something that have proven to be quite effective um, by the Ukrainians who use Turkish and U.S. drones. Um, So that was something that we heard from the United States and U.S. intel, which is sort of this concern that the Russians and Iranians are getting closer and closer because of obviously sort of the the anti-American views that they both have, but also the fact that Russia needs supplies, uh, military supplies for Ukraine. Um, And while he was there, he also met with the Turkish president. um, As we know, Turkey played a key role in sort of this this deal to allow grain to leave Ukraine. Um, And and Turkey's in this interesting, interesting situation where they are supplying weapons, including drones, to Ukraine. Um, So I'm sure that's one of the things that came up um, in the meeting between um, President Erdogan and President Putin, um, who had a bit of an awkward start to the meeting where where Putin um, was left waiting for a bit. Yes, many of us saw that that clip. Um, Joyce, the relationship between Moscow and Tehran has been fraught for a long time. We see President Putin here clearly seeking to shore up the alliance as Russia is further alienated from the West. Briefly, how successful do you think he was? I mean, for sure, uh, he's trying. uh, But but as you mentioned, uh, Sarah, these are uh, historically uh, rivals. They are also energy uh, uh, rivals, and they compete for interests in the Middle East. Uh, What we saw, though, in Tehran is uh, uh, Putin begging uh, for help, you know, when it comes to, to drones, to replenish uh, his, his drone support in, uh, uh, in Ukraine, uh, and uh, when it comes to evading uh, sanctions. So these are uh, two countries that are under uh, Western uh, sanctions, and uh, they find uh, themselves now in a, uh, in, in a mutual uh, advantageous uh, spot in coordinating uh, together. 
An executive order signed by President Biden on Tuesday promises more help for Americans detained or held hostage abroad. It gives government agencies the power to impose financial sanctions and visa restrictions on both state and non-state actors. On Thursday, Jen White spoke to Jason Rezaian, who was illegally detained by the Iranian authorities for more than 500 days. Now we're taking a more unified approach and looking at the hostage-taking of Americans, especially by foreign governments, as a kind of serial crime. And I think that figuring out what the motivations are for these hostage-takings by governments specifically, you can start to cultivate deterrence and, and figure out ways that cultivate ways that make it less attractive for people to do this moving forward. Joyce, I'll start with you. What was the reason for the administration acting now? This is obviously we're seeing big hostage uh, cases come to the national uh, stage, uh, mostly known, uh, you know, basketball player Brittany uh, Geiner, who is still sitting in a jail uh, in in Russia. You have others. Uh, You have a total of 64 uh, Americans, according to the James Foley Foundations, that are detained uh, abroad. Uh, So we're we're seeing more pressure uh, on the administration uh, to do more. Uh, when it comes to to freeing uh, these hostages, uh, the, the th- as Jason mentioned, this this order is is good in a way that it it finally puts federal uh, resources in freeing uh, hostages. It also uh, uh, boosts um, information sharing on the hostage uh, status with their uh, with their families. Uh, now the problem. Uh, is you have a lot of times, Sarah, that these governments or entities that that are taking hostages are already hostile uh, to the United States and restricting their visas or putting financial sanctions on them is not going to do much uh, because they're already under sanctions. For example, you know, Russia now or uh, or uh, or Iran. Uh, so while this does bring the hostage uh, situation uh, to uh, the national and, uh, uh, you know, federal uh, stage, uh, I'm not sure how much it will help in, in uh, getting these Americans uh, freed anytime soon. You mentioned James Foley. He, of course, was the journalist who was kidnapped by ISIS in 2012 and killed in 2014. My NPR colleague Steve Inskeep talked with Foley's mother, Diane Foley, earlier this week. We're just not there. We can do better, Steve. These are our people. Could be your son or father, my mother or sister. These are real living, breathing people, our citizens who need our help. Do you mean to say that when James Foley was in captivity, uh, the State Department might tell you we're on it or we'll get back to you, but they didn't? you don't believe that they were telling you everything they might know or everything they were trying to do? Jim was never a priority. We were told that constantly, but it was never the case. There were always um, policy above people. And I'm imploring this administration to put our people first for a change. Dan, we've heard before that families of those held are often encouraged by governments not to speak out for various reasons. As Diane Foley said, policy above people. Is that now considered an out-of-date approach when it's much easier for families to campaign online and, and make themselves hurt? Well, the, the the dilemma that was underlying that frustration, I think, kind of goes to the heart of this this whole problem and the reason why it's so challenging for policymakers. 
people, I mean, James Foley is an exception because that was uh, an ISIS kidnapping. But when you look at Brittany Griner or people who are held by China or by Iran, those governments are taking, uh, taking those people, detaining those people precisely because they want some kind of policy concession from the United States. So if you have a situation where the United States does, in fact, give those policy concessions. The fear for policymakers is that you make it more likely that there'll be additional detentions. You make that kind of detention, this kind of hostage taking, useful to foreign governments. So what, what you're seeing in this attempt by the Biden administration to respond to some of the public pressure, it's like a number of symbolic steps, which are really meant to kind of uh, show to families and others that they're taking this seriously, but they haven't really managed to overcome that basic dilemma. How do you do whatever you can to to take care of the people who are detained now without making it more likely that that more people will be detained in the future. Idris, this, this executive order also rolls out a new approach for U.S. citizens when they're traveling abroad. What's changed there? Yeah. So, I mean, currently the United States government and the State Department puts out travel advisories if there's conflict in a country, um, if there are special circumstances, just warning Americans not to go. What this executive order now does, it adds another sort of warning where it'll warn Americans where there's an elevated risk of wrongful detentions. And when they rolled out the executive order, they added six countries. So it's Myanmar, China, Iran, North Korea, Russia and Venezuela. Um, that are going to receive that warning. And much like my sort of colleagues were talking about the the other things in the executive order, it's it's important, but it's more symbolic because most of these countries are adversarial to the United States. I think there's a general understanding that if you go there, there is a chance of being wrongfully detained. So in terms of actual impact, I think there are questions about what it'll mean, what it actually can achieve. And it seems like some of the other things that the administration has done, it's it's more symbolic. And Joyce, you know, Americans working and visiting overseas have always been vulnerable to some extent to bad actors. This isn't exactly new. But would you say that Americans nowadays are more vulnerable than they were in the past? I mean, of course, because you, you do have more uh, conflicts uh, abroad where the U.S. is directly or indirectly uh, involved, uh, like the case is, uh, uh, you know, with, with Ukraine, um, uh, but also in Syria, for example. And, you know, when you talk to Austin Tice's uh, mom, Deborah Tice, uh, she says the same thing that uh, Foley's uh, mother uh, told NPR, that the administration is not doing enough and they would like uh, the Biden administration to take uh, these policy shifts that other governments uh, are, are asking for to free their, uh, uh, you know, their family members. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very uh, tough dilemma uh, for the administration. Uh, but when we look at the global, um, uh, you know, situation, when we look at the uh, degree of instability abroad, uh, I mean, whether Venezuela, Russia, uh, Syria, other places, there is more uh, tendency now to uh, to take uh, U.S. hostages. China has warned that it would take, quote, strong and resolute measures if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi goes forward with plans to visit Taiwan next month. President Biden was asked about the plan to visit after exiting Air Force One on Wednesday. The military thinks it's not a good idea right now, but uh, I, I don't know what the status of it is. Now, Pelosi would be the highest ranking U.S. lawmaker to visit the country since former Speaker Newt Gingrich's visit to Taiwan in 1997. Idris, what is the purpose of Pelosi's planned trip and why does she intend to make it now, soon? Yeah, so 
the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, was supposed to make this trip in April, um, but then she tested positive for COVID and it got pushed back. And really, there's been this push over the past few years under the Trump administration and continuing in the Biden administration. And it's sort of one of the few bipartisan areas um, in U.S. Congress, which is sort of this focus on China, making China the key adversary. And when you look at China, the biggest issue that would probably come up in the in the coming years or a decade or so is Taiwan, which obviously China sees uh, as it as a part of itself, and, and and you know Taiwan sort of wants not to be a part of China, and and and, and so it's one of the things that's really been in focus. And like you said, um, we've seen U.S. Um, cabinet members make trips. We've seen former defense secretaries, former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs make, make trips to Taiwan. But Nancy Pelosi is sort of in a league of her own. You know, she's second in line to the presidency. Um, her going there would be seen as extremely, extremely provocative for China, which again, sees Taiwan as a core national security interest. And, and, and so why now? It's one of those things that, you know, I think she was heading to Asia. She sees it as, 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 as an important signal. Um, a lot of Republican lawmakers actually have come out publicly and said, you know, we don't agree with Pelosi on almost everything, but this trip is really really important to show the Taiwanese people that we stand with them. And it, it sort of comes on the heels of, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so I think the message that they want to send is, look, we stood with Ukraine. Um, China, you should know that, you know, U.S. Congress is pretty divided. But the one thing we're not divided on is our support for Taiwan. And, you know, within the Pentagon, there's a lot of concern about what this will mean because the Chinese have publicly come out and say that they would retaliate. They haven't said how, but they've talked about retaliating, retaliating if Pelosi does make the trip. And so I think the administration and the military is sort of going through the different permutations and combinations about, well, if a trip is made, how will China respond? How will the U.S. have to then posture? And so I think it's causing a lot of concern within the administration. And you know, it's interesting because I, I think there's maybe not a deep understanding um, around the world that Pelosi sort of can do anything she wants. And her going there is not necessarily the Biden administration's policy. It's it's sort of her going on her own. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that is really concerning. And Dan, I'm really curious about that. I mean, what do you make of this apparent disagreement between Pelosi and the president? Why is she out ahead of him on this? I, I think it's in some ways a reflection of, way, of the, the ways in which the politics of being tough on China have really... Uh, swept through Washington, especially Capitol Hill. So for any individual uh, member of Congress, especially, there's there's real incentive to, to show that you are uh, willing to stand up to China to do things symbolically. Um, you know, Taiwan has become really the kind of focal point of, of U.S.-China competition in ways that are, uh, as, as Idris alluded to, you know, scary and dangerous. So um, there, there, there is this divide, I think, politically between a desire on the part of members of Congress and others to, to show that um, uh, that support for Taiwan to show the kind of resolution against China. Uh, and if you're you know, sitting in the Pentagon and worrying about what uh, Chinese reactions might be and how, how dangerous that could be, you have a slightly different vantage on it. So I don't have a, a great sense of the dynamic between you know, Pelosi and the president, exactly what has transpired in their conversations about it. But uh, the, the, the politics are pointing in a direction that suggests this is going to become more common, not less in the years ahead. 
And Idris, uh, briefly a follow-up on this. President Biden is expected to speak with Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time in months. It's unclear whether Biden's COVID diagnosis will affect those plans. Taiwan clearly is top of mind. But what else are leader, those leaders expected to talk about? Yeah, so I mean, China's really come into focus in the past few years. And, you know, I, I think we're at a point for this administration, and I think this include, it includes Congress as well, um, where they really want a relationship with China that's different from the relationship that has come into focus with Russia, which is sort of this agreement to disagree on many things, including Taiwan, including China's projection of soft and hard power around the world, but also sort of this areas where they can focus on, whether that's climate change, whether that's hunger, because I think the United States and the Biden administration realizes that they can't really make progress on many of these things without China's um, sort of at least acceptance of many of these things. Um, so they'll be discussing those things, how to manage conflict. There's a lot of concern in the, in the administration that there could be some sort of military accident between planes in the South China Sea because they do operate closely. So I think it's about opening channels, talking about Taiwan. And the other thing which I think we're expecting is um, the Biden administration to temporarily lower some tariffs on China. So I think that would be one of those things where it may not make a huge impact to the inflation rate in the United States or to, to sort of prices, but it could be sort of this olive branch to the Chinese. Um, and so I think if the call goes ahead, they're probably going to focus on areas where they can cooperate while sort of both laying out their positions on areas of disagreement, mainly Taiwan. U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen spoke out against China this week during a visit to Seoul uh, against what she described as China's, quote, unfair trade practices. We cannot allow countries like China to use their market position in key raw materials, technologies, or products to disrupt our economy or exercise unwanted geopolitical leverage. And Yellen called on South Korea to deepen economic ties with the United States. Joyce, how important is this relationship in addressing supply chain issues and staying competitive with China? Yeah, very important. And uh, what we saw from Secretary Yellen is uh, now she's promoting uh, French-shoring, uh, which is an approach uh, where you uh, have the U.S. and its allies in Asia and across the world trade more closely with one another and less so with geopolitical uh, rivals. Sort of, you know, building an economic uh, uh, coalitions, you know, learning from the lessons of uh, the pandemic, the supply disruptions, the war in Ukraine, uh, just learning not to depend too heavily on a single producer and this, in this case, we're talking about China. In this approach, particularly from uh, Secretary Yellen, uh, there is a shift uh, from the administration uh, because early on, uh, they, uh, the Biden administration went ahead in promoting onshoring, uh, which is, you know, moving uh, production and manufacturing within uh, the U.S., but that's not not enough. So now they're trying uh, French-shoring. French-shoring, uh, that's, a, that's a great term. <laughs> So the the question, you know, remains if, uh, you know, if this is the path that the U.S. will take, what would this mean on the tariffs uh, that are imposed on China and that Yellen herself uh, wanted to cut back some of them? Uh, I guess this all makes it, you know, all the more critical uh, uh, President Biden and President Xi uh, call if it happens later this month. 
That's Joyce Curram, a senior correspondent at The National. Thank you for joining us. Also, we've been talking with Daniel Kurtzfalen, editor of Foreign Affairs and author of The China Mission, and with Idris Ali, a foreign policy correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Thank you so much. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, D.C., distributed by NPR. And I'm Sarah McCammon. This is 1A.